Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We have invited Dr. Nick Gonzalez back to the show. This is the third time he will be joining us. He has come out with a brand new book called What Went Wrong? The Truth Behind the Clinical Trial of the Enzyme Treatment of Cancer. I have to tell you, if you want to read the inner workings of what happens at the National Institute of Health, the National Cancer Institute, NCAM, and literally how trials are sabotaged, how fraud is gotten away with in the medical industry, how much corruption in politics there is, and the actual evidence of it painstakingly written so that you have evidence of this and how deep and far-reaching it goes, the conflicts of interest involved just with this one clinical trial. We're not even talking about all the other hundreds and thousands of clinical trials. We are going to talk with Dr. Gonzalez today about things you need to know about clinical trials, what specifically happened to him, and things you need to know even before you pick up the book. The last time we had him on the show, we talked about what really happened to Steve Jobs, where he gave information that most of the public had no idea about, and it was quite a revelation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Gonzalez back to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning and good afternoon in New York. Kim, it's so great to be on your show again. I always appreciate it. It's it's so nice to have the opportunity to discuss what I do with your listeners. I so appreciate your work and how you're still standing for the rest of us. Well, I have to tell you that it was very, very difficult read. This is the first book I think I've had so much rage reading. (laughs) I was so angry reading the detail of this and how something as beautiful as what you're doing was totally sabotaged. And I think the first thing I'd like you to share is the most important thing that the public needs to know about clinical trials to start. Let's start with the first frame of reference. Well, the idea is that clinical trials bring together scientists who are interested in the truth, justice, finding out things that are going to help patients, working for the benefit of the patients without prejudice, without bias, uh, rational, reasonable men of science, men and women of science and ethics who are really only concerned about scientific truth and patients. Forget it. It's a lot of baloney. Um, Clinical trials are set up for eager aggrandizement, for financial gain, and really, in my experience, for very, very little else. And this isn't my opinion. New studies, of there are studies now about clinical trials have shown that at least 50% of the clinical studies published in mainstream peer-reviewed journals have an element of fraud, not mistakes, deliberate intent to defraud, where they try and make data look better or worse, depending on the perspective. So you can no longer trust uh, the medical journals or clinical trials to give you accurate assessments of clinical results or new treatments. You just can't trust them. So the idea that clinical trials are being organized by esteemed institutions such as the National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, to help uh, progress in science, progress in patient care, it's not what it is about at all. And I was there, you know, I come out of an academic research background, as you know, and I was involved with this clinical study for some, you know, eight years, depends on how you date it, but at least eight years. And not once would I say that I saw in, in any of the, the esteemed academicians assigned to this any concern for scientific truth, for getting the truth out about a new therapy that could benefit people who have no other choice in terms of treatment, they could have cared less. So it's been, uh, even though I'm not naive and I understand there's always been a prejudice against alternatives, I was really astonished at just how 
poorly run and how badly run and how incompetently run and how deliberately um, biased clinical studies can be and how how this was true in our clinical studies. But even for me, it was a revelation. Right up to the highest levels of the academic medical world. But you didn't go into this clinical study like this. You went in excited, didn't you? Oh, I was very excited. Well, it all began in 1998. We had done a pilot study, which was suggested by the National Cancer Institute. They called me down to Washington in 1993 and asked me to present cases. And I went down there, and I, there was a three-hour session, closed-door session with high-ranking scientists at the NCI and the NIH, and they were an invitation only. And they took me seriously, and they suggested, based on that presentation, I should do a pilot study with 10 patients diagnosed with advanced pancreatic cancer. Pilot study is technically a phase two study in which you most commonly, you don't have a control group, but you take a cancer for which there is no known conventional treatment that works and use the new treatment, and you assess it. And if, there, if that's successful, then you go to the control trial where you compare the new treatment to the best of the old treatment. So we got Nestle to fund the pilot study. The results were published in 1999, the best results in the history of medicine from pancreatic cancer. They were really extraordinary results by the standards of conventional oncology. Based on the preliminary results before the pilot study was even published in 1998, I was invited down to Washington to meet with Richard Klausner, who was then head of the NCI. And I met with him in the offices of Congressman Dan Burden, who's been a supporter of my work. And we met for two hours. And I was there with Klausner, you know, two, three feet away from me. We looked into each other's eyes, eye to eye. I don't want to be like, you know, Bush and Putin. I could see his soul. But <laughs> I really, I really believed that Klausner wanted to do a fair, honest study, believed that I was doing something valuable and needed to be tested. So he, at that, right there at that meeting, he approved this without even me filling out a, a, a grant proposal, approved an NCI grant just on his say as head of the NCI. And there was a lot of excitement, and there was a lot of excitement at that time in the alternative world because people knew I had academic training. This would be a great opportunity for a conventional, the, the conventional groups like the NCI and the NH to come together with a conventionally trained researcher who was now doing alternative cancer work, come together for the benefit of patients, for the benefit of mankind, for the benefit of scientific truth. There was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement, and I believe Klausner was very determined to do a fair, honest, honorable study. And the first group of people that were assigned to the study, I absolutely believe, want to do a fair, honest, honorable study. However, Klausner left to go off to work at a foundation for lots of money. And the new team came in, immediately replaced the old team, and from then on, we knew things changed. They had a completely different agenda, though they deny it. They said, we had no, yeah, they had an agenda. They, they deny it. They had an agenda. The agenda was Gonzalez is a total, complete nuisance. He talks too much. People pay too much attention to him. This is even 1999, 2000. Let's just make sure that his therapy gets buried where it belongs. That's what we would, we would be fighting for the next uh, six, seven years after the change in staff. There was one uh, NIH member who was very supportive initially of doing a fair study, and we became friends. She was told that she could not speak to me or she might be fired or she would be fired. She was so disgusted that she eventually quit and went to work for a private foundation. And she later told me the story because suddenly she couldn't take my phone calls and what the heck is going on. But that's the level of uh, intrigue and that's the level of uh, dictatorial harassment that was going on to make sure the study, to make sure the study went in the direction they wanted it to go in. Oh my God. How far in did you know the whole thing was being sabotaged and fixed? Well, um, in, initially when the study was set up, we, Dr. Isaacs and I, my colleague Dr. Isaacs, who worked together, were allowed to, ha to be involved in, with the selection of patients, which is a very important thing. You know, we'd already been using the, the treatment for 
some 13 years at that point. You know, I'd been researching it for five years before, and we knew what we can do, what we can't do. We knew what patients are suitable, what can't do. And we're dealing with advanced pancreatic cancer, so it's not as if we could instill some bias. And people with advanced pancreatic cancer are dead in three to six months. But we also know what our limits are. If a patient can't eat, they can't do the study. And initially, Klausner and the NCI agreed we should be part of the team that approves patients for entry into the study, that a patient could not be entered unless the, the, the NCI and the, was being run at Columbia University. That was the site here in New York where it was being run with the Columbia team, the NCI, and we all agreed a patient was acceptable that they'd be admitted. Well, in 2000, in summer of 2000, suddenly the NCI came down to came up to New York and we had a meeting up at Columbia, and they announced this representative of the NCI who reminds me one of those one of those nerds from junior high school that nobody liked, um, announced that we could no longer be involved with the assessment and approval of patients for the clinical study because if we were involved, it would enter a bias into the study. They were all so afraid that the alternative doctors would enter a bias, and that would sabotage the whole study. They were so worried about we, Dr. Isaacs and I, sabotaging the study. So we're absolutely totally excluded from anything to do with the entry and approval of prospective but patients. But they're already biased. That's correct. Well, see, we didn't realize it, but the person who was put in charge, John Chabot, is a surgeon up at Columbia, a pancreatic surgeon. We thought he was an objective outside, you know, just as a principal investigator of a study, you have to be completely unbiased and have no tie to either treatment that's being compared. Well, it turns out he helped develop the chemo regimen that was being used against us, which we didn't know and we would only learn years later. But he was put in sole dictatorial charge of the assessment and approval of all trial candidates, both those who were going to come to us and those who were going to be assigned to chemotherapy. And, of course, the, the ones being assigned to chemo were being tre- treated by his colleague and good friend, uh, Dr. Fine. So we didn't know any of that inside political intrigue. Was all, we were all blinded to that. But at this meeting in July of 2000, we were told that we could no longer be involved in the assessment of patients. That would enter a bias. And at all decisions about patient acceptability would be given to Dr. John Chabot. He single-handedly controlled all patient entry. In my experience with clinical trials, you always have a group who votes on patient acceptance. You never have one doctor given total dictatorial approval, but they did that. And that was the first warning sign to Dr. Isaacs and I. I remember on the cab ride back from Columbia to our office, we were not happy with that at all. We could immediately see there was a real change in the way these people were approaching us. And there was almost hostility toward us that we couldn't be trusted, that they had, that only the academic authorities could be trusted, like Dr. Chabot. Alternative doctors, by definition, are not trustworthy. That was the whole attitude. So Chabot was put in total charge of the approval and acceptance and evaluation of prospective study candidates. The guy who helped develop the chemo regimen, you talk about biases. I mean, that's a bias that should have prevented him from ever having anything to do with managing the study. Total conflict of interest. Total conflict of interest. A conflict of interest that should, in any properly run clinical study, should have prevented him from serving in any kind of managerial role, but but particularly as head of the study. I mean, the NCI's position is we couldn't be involved because we helped develop one of the treatments, but then they put a guy in charge who helped develop the chemo. You see, that's, that's how unclear they think. They think that academic, conventional doctors have no bias. It's like they're the special genetically mutated group of humans that have no bias. The idea that the fact that he helped develop the chemo regimen immediately defines him as having a bias. Uh, didn't even occur to them. They were so biased against us that they, o- they only saw bias in us. They didn't see it in themselves. So that was that was the warning sign when we knew we were headed for trouble. But 
but we weren't going to quit. You know, Dr. Isaacs and I were both made of tough stuff, and we agreed to do this clinical study, and no one was going to push us off this study. I suspect at one point, you know, not at that point, but a few years later, they wanted us to quit. Then they could turn around and see Gonzalez is just another alternative jerk who says his bias against alternatives, but when he's given the chance to do a clinical study, he doesn't have the guts, the integrity, or the intelligence to do it. We weren't going to let them do that to us. You know, with Dr. Brzezinski, they made it so miserable for him. He actually quit his clinical study some years earlier in the 1990s. They still use that against him, you know, 15, 20 years later. We weren't going to do that. We were going to stay with this study, make their lives miserable by insisting they abide by the appropriate tenets of clinical trial management and the ethical management of patients. We were going to insist that they abide by the regulations of clinical trial management. We weren't going to run away. And that probably just irritated them anymore. It would have been far easier if we quit than they could have just laughed at us, held a press conference, and Gonzalez didn't have the guts to do a clinical study, like all the alternative guys. Well, we did have the guts. We weren't going to leave. Though immediately we saw when after that meeting in 2000 that things had changed and it was going to be a really tough haul to get this study to be run properly. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Clayton Nolte spent 40 years studying and observing water. He is in love with water. He's dedicated to water. He has a relationship to water. And he's created these marvelous devices. And these devices go under your sink. They go in your shower head. They go in your main water line of your home. They go to your farms. They go to anywhere that you need to get water, including mobile units you can take around with you. People report that you get fresh tasting, invigorating water that has a low surface tension, greater density, no more dry skin. You don't have to use as much soap when you're washing. It reduces the chlorine requirements for spas and swimming pools. It reduces corrosion and deposits in pipes. It increases the longevity of all of the systems that use water and reduces odors around water use facilities. And one of the big things it does is it improves the growth of crops with increased biomass. You need to go to naturalactionwater.com and read about the benefits of the devices that Clayton Nolte made. When you're done with that, we also did an interview with him, but if you really want to bring a totally different kind of water into your homes, into your apartments, into your buildings, into your farms, and in your land, go to naturalactionwater.com and call Natural Action Water at 928-567-6466, 928-567-6466, and back to the show. Now, the screening of the patients is really critical to your protocol because you have individualized diets you're giving them and individualized supplements and individualized detox protocols. So isn't part of the protocol for the whole trial you have to assess if they're an appropriate patient for this? Yeah, well, of course, any, any logical sane person would come to that conclusion, but not the NCI and the NIH, you know, in their own erudite manner. They, they couldn't realize what should have been so obvious. This is a nutritional therapy. We know what our limitations are. Patients have to follow a diet. They have to drink carrot juice. They have to eat organic food. They have to take 200 capsules a day. If you cannot eat, you cannot do it. Now, we treat pancreatic cancer patients successfully. We've treated many, many who are out 10, 15, even 20 years with us. But there's one limitation. If a patient can't eat, they can't do the therapy. And with pancreatic cancer, because it involves a digestive organ, the pancreas is a main digestive organ, very often they can't eat. And if they can't eat, they can't do it. Now, there was a written protocol for this study, which we worked on back in 1997, 1998, as the, as the protocol was developing. Um, we were working on this. 
And we had a list of requirements that patients had to meet before they would be acceptable. One of them is they had to eat normally. It was written right into the protocol. Obviously, this is a requirement that makes sense because it's a nutritional therapy. It's not an IV. They have to do it orally. They have to follow a diet, take supplements. Well, repeatedly, the principal investigator approved patients and entered patients to be treated by us who couldn't eat, who had no appetite. One guy had lost 70 pounds, and he was approved by Dr. Chabot. He had no appetite at all. Two of the patients he entered were on appetite stimulants because their appetite was so poor, and it's written right into the protocol. They had to be able to eat three meals a day and eat normally. The consent form said eat normally. It's right there, but he just ignored it. And we would complain, and he would say, too bad. And the, I, I went to the NCI at one point about this, that he was entering patients that were too sick to do it and couldn't eat. And the NCI guy in charge said he could have cared less. I mean, his attitude was he could have cared less. He said, if you don't like it, you can quit the study. That was, that, they were trying to goad us into quitting. But we still didn't quit. Um, there were other requirements. For example, as everybody out there knows, pancreatic cancer is a very aggressive cancer. The average survival for an operable disease, and this, these are all patients who have an operable tumor. They can't be treated surgically. It's about three to six months. One of the requirements of the written protocol, it's written right into the official roadmap for the study, is patients had to be admitted within eight weeks of biopsy. And even that, I thought that was too liberal because these patients can deteriorate in two weeks. Well, uh, repeatedly, Dr. Chabot entered patients who were beyond the eight weeks from diagnosis. This is not something a judgment call or a bias or not bias. This is written into the protocol. You have to be entered within eight weeks from the biopsy. And he repeatedly entered patients. One patient, he entered 11 weeks after the biopsy. The patient was already catastrophically declining because it was 11 weeks from biopsy. And Chabot said they're entered. I complained. I have the emails, and they're in the book, as you saw, complained about this. And he said, too bad. You know, basically, you've got to do it. Uh, either do it or quit. So we would treat these patients. They couldn't do it. They were too sick. So every, every aspect of patient entry was turned against us. Patients were entered who were too sick. Patients were entered who couldn't eat. Patients were entered eight weeks, well beyond eight weeks from the biopsy. Patients were entered with mental illness. Now, mental illness is a very sad thing. Most clinical studies, involve, in fact, all that I know of involving lifestyle, preclude patients with mental illness because people that are mentally ill can't follow a rigorous lifestyle nutritional program at home. They can't do it. They're not capable of doing it. That was written into our program, not to try and be biased against the mentally ill or be cruel to them. Actually, it's cruel to enter those kind of patients into a clinical study because then they get frustrated because they can't do it. So it's for their best interest as well as the integrity, the interest of the integrity of the study, not to admit them because they're not going to be able to do it. It was written into the protocol as it's been written into many lifestyle protocols, and patients with a history of depression, mental illness, will not, will not be acceptable. At least three patients were admitted with active, obvious disease. One patient was on high doses of two antidepressants. I mean, why enter a patient like that? That's not to their benefit. Even though the protocol precluded such patients, they were admitted repeatedly. So um, it was obviously, obviously being engineered so that our therapy would, would appear to be ineffective. I'm amazed that you got as much evidence as you did. Well, I think part of the enormous bias of the scientists at the academic institutions like Columbia, the NCI, and the NIH, particularly at the higher levels, and we were dealing with people right up to the head of the NCI and the NIH, we were dealing with high-level academicians, by definition, their own bias is so strong against alternatives, they assume anyone who goes into alternative medicine like me must be a low-grade idiot. And they never suspected that I would have the intelligence to put any of this evidence together. They never thought I'd be smart. I think they never thought I'd be smart enough. I was just plain too stupid. If I had any brains, I'd be doing what they're doing, which is basically useless research and useless treatments. The idea that an alternative practitioner 
has more brains than a salamander is just so beyond their consciousness. Like asking, you know, asking me to describe the land, landscape of Pluto, I can't do it. I've never been there. It's inconceivable to them that an alternative doctor could possibly have any level of intelligence. Um, they underestimated us both, Dr. Isaacs and I, and my colleague Isaacs, a brilliant, brilliant woman, brilliant doctor. We were she she is meticulous about collecting data, meticulous about collecting emails. Uh, we have emails now going back 14 years about this clinical study. Uh, we just collected everything, and also we put everything in writing. When we realized they, could, they were not trustworthy, we made sure everything was in writing, not just phone calls. Your paper trail was incredible. That is a sight to behold. <laughs> well, we stopped using the phone. In fact, we wouldn't, we wouldn't use the phone. The other thing, every three months we had these meetings where the people from the NIH and the NCI would come up, and we'd meet at Columbia and have these formal meetings, and the minutes would be made. Well, we began to realize the minutes were, being, were not being transcribed accurately. And when we had the right to request corrections, they at times would just ignore us and ignore the corrections. And they would put things in the minutes that had not been said that made them look better, and things that we had said critically were not put in. So the official record was not accurate. So at one point, we just stopped going to the meetings. And we explained to them all. We said, because the minutes are not being accurately transcribed, in the future, any communication with us has to be in writing, not even by phone. We wouldn't take their phone calls because then they could not deny they said what they said. Everything had to be in writing. And, of course, again, since they assumed we were so stupid, they did that. They would send us emails that clearly indicated you know, that they hadn't, the study hadn't been managed properly. So, yes, we had an impeccably done uh, paper trail that uh, is you know, really, quite, really quite amazing. They're- I mean, it's almost lawsuit-ready actually. You mean sue them? Well, it's like lawsuit prepared. If that were ever something that you were called to do, there's a billion dollar lawsuit literally ready to go. Oh yeah, because we basically did it. One patient, one person who read my book said it's almost like a legal document, which may not sound like an exciting book, but believe me, the issues were so uh, inflammatory. It had to be done like a legal document where everything is documented you know, just completely without any doubt so there can be, as there is no doubt with you. Uh, we just couldn't say, oh, he admitted patients that didn't meet the protocol requirements. I l- showed how they didn't meet the repro- protocol requirements. I had the emails there. I quoted from the medical records so people would see these people didn't meet them. That's what's so painful. It's not like you're just telling that it happened. It's in there. It's oh, yeah. so brutal to see it. Oy, one, God. Of th- one of the things that really troubled me, which you, you recall, is the patients had to be admitted within eight weeks, and Chabot repeatedly admitted patients beyond eight weeks. But the other thing he repeatedly did, I mean, this happened uh, I, I, repeatedly, where he, patients would contact him wanting to be evaluated, and they, we couldn't evaluate them. In order to be assessed for the study, they had to go through Columbia. So they would call us, and we'd say, well, you have to go to Columbia. We had one patient who, five weeks after he contacted Columbia and sent his records there, still hadn't heard about the, his status as to whether he was accepted or not. Now, this guy had advanced pancreatic cancer. You can be dead in five weeks. I mean, he had three months to live. Five weeks after he first contacted Columbia, he still had not heard from Columbia about his status. I mean, three weeks after he had contacted Columbia, when he hadn't heard, he contacted us with a desperate email, which I have a fax, which I have in the book. The guy was desperate. He knew what was going on. His cancer was progressing. He wasn't on any treatment. While he was waiting to hear from Columbia, he wasn't receiving any treatment, and his disease was progressing. And three weeks into this, he sent us a fax. We contacted Columbia. Chabot did nothing about it. Finally, at five weeks, just as about his eight-week time limit was going to expire, he was accepted into the study. Five weeks were lost. And that ultimately, I believe, cost him his life. 
he tried to do the program, but with five weeks of relentless cancer progression without any treatment, he was not the same person as when he first contacted us, first contacted our office. So this was done repeatedly where patients were kept waiting for weeks at a time before Columbia would make their decision. Now, in our own office, when we have patients that contact us with cancer, we make our decision within 48 hours because if we, can't, if we don't think someone is suitable, we want them to know so they can go and do something else. We don't want them waiting three weeks while we make our decision. Right, because it's a fast-moving cancer. Any kind of cancer is, can be fast-moving. So with all our patients in our practice, whatever cancer they have, they contact our office, send the records. We make a decision within 24 hours. So we can free them if we're not going to accept them to go to something else, or if we're going to accept them, they can get started right away. But not in this clinical study. Um, more than half the patients were uh, it, were approved six weeks or more after their diagnosis. Uh, that that created an enormous liability in terms of the, the, our, the ability of our program to succeed because so much valuable treatment time had been lost while these patients were waiting to hear from Columbia. So that was another subtle way or unsubtle way of really undermining the study and underlying the validity of the data. And what's interesting, as you read in the book, despite all this, despite the multiple patients that couldn't do, we had patients that never even did the program, but we still, at the time the study ended in 2006, the longest survivors, the two longest survivors were our patients, one three and a half years out and the other two years eight months with stage four disease, multiple lesions in the liver, who would have done better, but her oncologist, local oncologist who was following her, convinced her to go off this quack therapy and go to chemo, and she died. But she still lasted two years, eight months. And the other guy, three and a half years, and he died not of cancer, but of an infection that after a surgical procedure for a hernia, he ended up with an infection in the mesh they put in there, and that's what killed him. So we, the two longest survivors were ours, despite all the incompetence and despite the undermining of the study and the admission of so many patients who weren't qualified to do it and couldn't possibly do our treatment. So even there we had victories, even though it was tough, because we estimate out of the 39 patients entered into the our arm of the study, maybe five or six actually did it at all to any extent. And the ones that did it generally had a response. Now, the real, the real kicker to this, which I discuss in the book, is the way the initial protocol was set up in 1998, 1999. You mean with the lead-in period? Yeah, there was a, well, there was, lead-in, very often life, the two things, lead-in period and intent to treat. Lead-in period, what Kim's referring to is, in clinical studies that involve lifestyle type interventions, you're dealing with a therapy the patients have to do at home, not that they show up at the oncologist, eat ice cream, watch TV, and get IV drugs, and don't have to think about it. They have to do this therapy at home. So lifestyle intervention therapy uh, protocols and clinical studies usually have a leading period, which means several-week period where you assess the patient and see if they're going to comply or not. If they're not going to comply, you don't include them in the study. And this is done. It's even done in chemo regimens. You know, if the patients can't are too sick to do the treatment, you discount them from the study. Well, in our, in our, uh, in our clinical trial, that was not allowed that any, as soon as a patient was entered, they were considered as, you know, they were going to be considered as treatment. And they had an intent to treat clause, which meant that as soon as Chabot approved a patient, even if they never took a supplement, they were considered as Gonzalez-treated patients. There was one patient that was so sick, he did it for a couple of weeks and then went off and got chemo at Columbia and died. He's considered a Gonzalez treatment failure, even though he died on chemo. That's outrageous. It's, it's insanity. It's insanity. And this is considered a legitimate um, requirement in a clinical trial. Well, it's a legitimate requirement, maybe in a drug study, but it's not legitimate for a, a nutritional therapy where patients have to be assessed for compliance. Isn't this medical fraud, basically? If they're saying that somebody that went and got clinical treatment somewhere else, but yet you're taking the hit for it under yes, something totally different? 
he was counted as a Gonzalez treatment failure, even though he died on chemotherapy. Well, it, you know, as, as my lawyer who reviewed this book very carefully said, the word fraud is a, has a legal term and it would require the FDA or somebody to say fraud was committed. So I, I won't use that. All right, word. what do you call it? I, <laughs> I call it. What do you call this what it really is? We can't say what it really is. What's another word for saying what it really is that we can't say? It's just insanity. I would use the word insanity. It's insanity when a patient who dies on chemo is considered a Gonzalez treatment failure. I, I don't care what the scientific rationalizations are for that. There are all kinds of justifications for intent to treat. And in its pure sense, there's a reason why they have that rule, intent to treat, which simply means, again, to, for your listeners, that as soon as a patient is approved into the study, they're considered treated, even if they never do it. Because uh, they found in clinical studies of drug treatments that patients would get so sick from the drug, they would quit or they would, you know, they would quit the program and then they wouldn't be counted. But it was really the drug that was causing them to quit. So those are really, those are really treatment failures. So they're trying to avoid that. But in a lifestyle therapy like ours, in the evaluation of a lifestyle therapy, it's absolutely critical to have a lead-in period where you assess patients for compliance. If they can't do it, you, you, you don't count them as data. That's done in lifestyle uh, protocols, like the famous diabetes study that showed that close monitoring of insulin and uh, tight control of insulin and blood sugar really um, prolonged life and reduced side effects. They had a, an extraordinary lead-in period where people were being evaluated by psychologists and nutritionists before they were ever in, entered officially into the study. We weren't allowed that. And not only were we not allowed the lead-in, we had this intent to treat that as soon as Chabot approved a patient, they were considered Gonzalez patients, even if they went off and did moon dust. So there, there was no, with all these obstacles, there was no way to get a just legitimate study done. It just it wasn't, it wasn't possible, it wasn't conceivable. But we still fought on. We weren't going to let them get away with it. We weren't going to walk away, which would be used against us. We were going to stay to the end. And doing that, we still had the two longer survivors at the time the study ended. Now, I want you to explain what happened with some of the patients who were seen by the other doctors, and the doctors were trying to convince them to stop treatment with you. <laughs> yeah. One of the, another protocol requirement, which we objected to strenuously, is it required all patients entered into the study, both the chemo patients and our patients, had to see a doctor on a monthly basis. Well, that sounds kind of innocent, but, you know, our patients come from all over the country, and for this clinical study, out of the 39 entered with us, only three came from the New York area. That meant 36 patients had to be followed by a local doctor, and usually it was the original treating oncologist that may have made the diagnosis. And these doctors had no love for us. I mean, what a surprise. Conventional oncologists thought that, you know, this was uh, just as our therapy is a scam, whatever, the nasty words they use, quackery, et cetera. Repeatedly, we had oncologists who were, the patients were required to see on a monthly basis, try and dissuade them from staying on the, on the protocol, staying with treatment with us and move on to chemo. This happened repeatedly. Patients were talked out of staying with us. How did you find that out? Patients would tell us. Um, they would say, oh, my oncologist just attacked the study. In fact, we had one eminent oncologist who was following one of our patients who said, oh, this, this clinical study is a fraud. It's a, it's a money-making scam for Gonzalez. You know, the alternative guys, we only do this for money. Well, we weren't making any money off of this. We weren't making any money at all. Apparently, they had problems paying their bills, too. They couldn't even pay their bills. We had to, frankly, which is unheard of in government-sponsored clinical studies, we were actually paying for the patient's treatment. One of the requirements of the protocol was that the grant would cover the patient's treatment, and we that's only fair. We thought that was very nice. However, the government wasn't regularly doing that, and we patients were not getting reimbursed, and the supplement supplier wasn't being reimbursed, so Dr. Isaacs and I started out of our own pocket undermining, uh, underwriting the cost of the pro pro protocol for these patients. At times, their bills would be in excess of $20,000. 
And eventually, you know, sometimes 10 months later, the NCI and Columbia would reimburse us, and eventually we were reimbursed. But it was like Chinese water torture, where we were having to literally financially subsidize the patient's treatment. I know of no clinical study funded by the government where the investigators had to financially underwrite the study for long periods of time because the government just wasn't paying the money out. I've never heard that happen before. It's the first time in my experience, and I have a lot of experience with clinical studies, first time in my experience where I've heard the investigators had to financially underwrite. That was clearly deliberate. It, clearly deliberate. Well, if there, if, if, there are two possibilities. Either it's deliberate or it's they're too incompetent stupid. If they're too incompetent stupid, they shouldn't be working for the NIH or the NCI. I mean, that's my opinion. Uh, but I don't think they're that stupid. Uh, these are MDs and PhDs. You know, being an MD or PhD doesn't require genius, but it does require a certain minimum amount of intelligence. You know, you have to be able to distinguish a heart from a coconut kind of thing. So it has a certain minimal amount of, minimal amount of intelligence. I, from my experience, the, the, the people are a lot, they think they're a lot smarter than they are, and they, they, they're, they're not as smart as their mothers think they are, and they think they're a lot smarter than they are. But they have a certain minimal intelligence. They can read, they can write. They can open their mouth and words sometimes come out that make intelligent uh, statements. But they're not, they're not necessarily that bright, but they're not that stupid that they don't know how to pay bills because they run other clinical studies where the bills are paid. So the other possibility was deliberate. Why would it be deliberate? Just to make our life miserable, get us to quit, so then they can say, see, Gonzalez is a jerk, doesn't have the guts integrity to stick with a clinical study. Wow. I, there are only two possibilities. Either they're so stupid and incompetent, one wonders how they get up in the morning, put their shoes on, or it was deliberate. I'm sure you gave them a run for the money and the whole energy of the project. I'm sure they've never dealt with the likes of somebody like you. They've never seen it in their life. Um, again, their, their, their operating premise was Dr. Isaacs and I are such morons that they can do whatever they like, and we'll be so stupid we won't see it. And because we're alternative, no one will take us seriously. The idea that I would actually keep documentation and prove that they didn't manage the study properly and file complaints against them, it never occurred to them that that was possible. They thought they'd get away with it because they're the esteemed scientific investigators and they could do whatever they want and that no one would take me seriously and I was too stupid to catch them doing what they were doing. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut. The Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. 
Talk about the FDA's position, their take on the actual study and what happened and what they did and didn't do. After all is said and done, what did the FDA do about it and what did they say? Just to give you some background, ours was a federally funded clinical study and as is required for all federally funded clinical studies, the FDA has to sign off on it. That's a requirement. That initially kind of made me nervous back in 1998. I will tell you, I know in the alternative world, the FDA strikes fear and dread into everyone's heart and minds and the FDA tries to get supplements off the market. I'm aware of all that. However, in our case, the FDA approved our study within 60 days. It's like a miracle. They can delay a drug study for two years if they want to before they give approval. They approved this. They fast-tracked it, and they never interfered. They never uh, sent people to see what was going on. They let us run the study without interference, and they approved it almost in record time. And that, to me, was just extraordinary because they could have sabotaged the whole thing from the beginning. If the FDA didn't sign off on it, we couldn't have done the clinical study. And I know the FDA doesn't love alternative medicine, but in our case, they let it go. I guess they assumed that we were doing serious science. Well, in 2006, when I realized the study had been grossly mismanaged, I filed a complaint with the Office of Human Research Protections, which is the federal group assigned the task of overseeing the ethical management and the appropriate management of federally funded clinical studies. Even though they may not have had much love for an alternative practitioner like me, I gave them so many hundreds of pages of documents, they actually opened a formal investigation. It took them two years. Government people are slow. It would have taken us about three months, but it took them two years because they, you know, they work nine to five and have all the, you know, 400 days of holidays every year. So they finally got their, <laughs> they finally got their investigative investigation finished in 2008, and it's on their website to this day. And they found, as we had said, that multiple patients had been admitted improperly. In fact, out of a total of 62 patients admitted to both chemo and uh, the nutritional arm, 42 had been admitted improperly. That's 42 out of 62. That's more than two-thirds of the patients were improperly admitted into this clinical study. I have been told, though I have no independent documentation, the fact that that's a record for a federally funded study, that 42 out of 62 patients improperly admitted. Well, when the OHRP came up with that finding, the FDA felt obligated to start its own investigation because they had signed off on this study at Columbia and the NIH and the NCI. And without my knowledge, they actually never contacted me. I only found, about, found out about this later. They started an investigation, actually did a site visit to Columbia, and about a year ago posted on their website their findings. And to my astonishment, they vindicated our major complaints, and they named Dr. John Chabot, the chief investigator, right on their website, the FDA website, for the world to see. And they found that he didn't do informed consent properly, which we had said that was one of the issues we were concerned and about. And what do you mean? I know what informed consent is, and I'm sure the listeners do, but how can you not do it properly? Meaning you're missing well, information, you're not disclosing what? Informed consent is a major issue. In fact, all federally funded studies require by law that every patient entered into a clinical study sign a statement of informed consent in which they acknowledge that the risks and benefits of the experimental treatment have been explained to them. They understand that they don't have to do this, that this is voluntary, they can quit any time. It's just basically informing them that this is a clinical study with an experimental treatment, and they have to sign it. And our clinical trial, as do all other federally funded clinical studies, require an informed consent signed by the patient before they can be admitted. Well, again, because we're the alternative people, we're too stupid and too biased to be involved with anything to do with patient admission into the study, all informed consent was handled at Columbia. It was handled grossly incompetently. We have patients that we later learned were admitted for treatment with us, which is horrific, without ever having signed informed consent. Unbelievable. And in fact, one of the, one of the findings of the OHRP was that 40 patients had not been, out of 62, had not been properly consented. I mean, how can you not do informed consent? It's the essence of appropriate ethical clinical trial management. 
And that, that was a factual issue, and that's why, even though there may have been prejudice against us in Washington at the NIH and the OHRP, when the Office of Human Research Protections realized informed consent wasn't being done by the esteemed academic, academicians in charge of the study, they had, to, they had to find them guilty, and they did. So the FDA found, indeed, that informed consent wasn't done properly. That's, see, that wasn't deliberate. That's careless. There were two things going on here. We believe deliberate intent, but also incompetence. Not getting informed consent properly is incompetence. So the FDA found informed consent wasn't done properly. Then, to, to my astonishment, the FDA found that the written protocol had not been followed. Well, the essence of any appropriate clinical trial management is that you have to follow the written protocols, the roadmap for the clinical study. Didn't follow it. Then, to my astonishment, the FDA concluded that Dr. Chabot, the principal investigator, did not keep accurate or complete records. How can you run a clinical study and not keep accurate or complete records? The whole essence of scientific investigation is to find the truth, and you find the truth through keeping accurate and complete records. He did not do that. And there was another finding they had, which was less serious. But he didn't follow the protocol, which is what we complained about from the beginning, and he didn't, complete, didn't um, maintain complete and accurate records. How can you do a clinical study and not uh, maintain complete and accurate records? So the FDA found this, but it's still on their website. Unfortunately, they didn't adjudicate things like, was this deliberate? Was this fraud? They didn't do that. They didn't touch that. They just did the kind of mechanical issues and posted it on their website, and there was no punishment, really. Just they kind of wrapped his knuckles. Both the, well, it's interesting. The OHRP actually made the Columbia team undergo training in research methodology. So this is the irony of the whole study. We, the alternative practitioners, the, the kind of the know-nothing guys that don't know about real science, who really do know about real science, we filed a complaint. And indeed, the OHRP found that the Columbia team, the esteemed academicians, are supposed to be the mediators of scientific truth, didn't do the study properly and required them to undergo training in re research methodology. I think that's the biggest joke of this whole thing, where the esteemed academicians at the Ivy League Institution in Columbia had to undergo retraining in appropriate clinical trial management based on the complaint filed by alternative doctors. So there is a certain ironic justice in this whole story. I know, but the tragedy is many people died who were not properly admitted to the program and not properly taken care of and who were sabotaged on the side by the oncologists, which is abhorrent beyond belief. And eight years of your and Dr. Isaac's life has been taken up in this valiant struggle. I really want for you and Dr. Isaacs to have more than this incredible 500-page story to tell. What's the silver lining of this? It can't just be the distillation of all the evidence in the book. What do you walk away with? Well, the thing uh, Dr. Isaacs and I walk away personally is we never compromised. We didn't compromise for the truth or for the patients once in this whole study. We fought for these patients. We fought for scientific truth. We fought for the appropriate um, investigation of scientific issues without compromising. So we know our integrity is not touched at all, besmirched. Um, they have a lot to answer for, and they know they do. We don't, you know, we really, really didn't compromise once. So we're, you know, we're glad about that. That makes us feel good. We did the best we could do. Um, secondly, the thing that keeps us going, I mean, there are much easier ways to go through life than trying to take on the NCI, the NIH Columbia with an alternative therapy that the entire profession hates, especially since I was trained as a conventional doctor. I was trained to do bone marrow transplants. I could be making a fortune. I was offered two jobs at Sloan Kettering. I had to turn them both down because it would have required to give up my controversial research, but at least they thought that my professors from Cornell thought enough of me that Cornell was associated with Sloan Kettering, where I went to medical school at Cornell. And they wanted me to come join them at Sloan, but I'd have to give up the controversial research. I won't do it. I never compromise, so I'm, I'm pleased with that, that you know, other people do, we don't. 
Uh, we didn't compromise the truth ever. We didn't compromise for the patients ever. We did the best we could for it for every one of those patients entered into this clinical study. And the thing that keeps us going in this difficult life that we lead is the fact that so many of our patients with terminal disease get well. You get a patient well and, and that no one else could, could have gotten well, you don't need another reason to keep going. Um, we have patients with pancreatic cancer going back 15 years that just, you know, they make everything worthwhile and they make this whole thing so trivial. Um, the sadness is, you're right, there are patients we could have helped that were talked out of staying on the protocol by their oncologists who were too sick or kept waiting too long before the decision was made about their eligibility that could have been helped. We did everything we could to try and protect them from that. We couldn't succeed because of the stubbornness of the Columbia and the NIH and the NCI. But in our own practice, we get people well. We're still getting people. I had a guy in last week who's been on the program almost three years with terrible pancreatic cancer. He's leading him. He's 80, like 82 years old now. They gave him up for dead three years ago, and he's alive, and he's leading a life, and he still works. He runs a business. And he, he was sitting in my office, and, you know, it kind of makes, brings tears to your eyes that, you know, here's a guy who was thought that he was going to be dead in six weeks, and he's alive and well three years later. I mean, he hadn't been out that long, but he was just in my office last Friday. And that's, you know, it makes it worthwhile. You know, my, my patient from St. Louis is now out um, 11 years with stage 4 pancreatic cancer into the liver. Every tumor's gone. He's alive and well, and he's raising a single father, raising his kids. Just, you know, what other justification, what other reward do you need than that? Stupid grants, recognition by the profession. Who cares about that? It's getting the patients well that matters and making sure you never compromise when issues of truth are involved. You're really courageous. More courageous than most because... You stood the entire time during this eight-year process and never let up with what needed to be done, and you stewarded it like a great leader. So all of us really need to thank you for doing that. And I'm sure that there are personal costs that both of you took, aside from all the sweat and money, just the lost sleep and the stress of it, I'm sure, was agonizing. Well, it was. You know, when patients are kept waiting five weeks and they send us these de desperate letters, their life slipping away, and Columbia doesn't even answer our phone calls. It's, I can't tell you how frustrating. That, that's the real frustration, the fact that they're trying to undermine and destroy my career. I mean, that's, that's a terrible thing, but really the main thing is what they're doing to patients. And also, by undermining this clinical study, they're keeping a useful treatment from seeing the light of day. So, okay, Isaacs and I, we still have our practice patients. We've never been busier. Um, but it's not getting the mainstream acceptance that the therapy deserves. For the ben not for my ego or I'll win the Nobel Prize, but for the benefit of patients who, who aren't going to hear about it because it's been buried again by the academic authority. Have you given up all vision of anything in the vein of what you're doing, the effectiveness of the protocol you're working with becoming mainstream? Oh, it's never going to become mainstream because the mainstream is too corrupt. I was, I was in that world. You know, I was trained in that world, and I've been dealing with clinical studies since the NCI invited me down in 1993. But my experience is over since 1997-1998. They are so corrupt that an, an honest, honorable therapy like this that doesn't fit the drug company model is never going to be mainstreamed. They just hate it so much. Um, they just can't stand it. it. It doesn't fit their model. It's like you know, it's like asking a Buddhist to become a Hindu. I mean, they, you know, they're just asking them to change their entire rationale for living. You know, you have to realize all these people at the top of the academic world, these people we've been dealing with, these are the people who, you know, from junior high school were told that the smartest, junior, uh, Dr. Isaacs calls it the junior high school syndrome. Every single person at the NIH and the NCI at Columbia, they were all told in junior high school they're the smartest kid in school, they're going to win the Nobel Prize in medicine, their mommies thought they were going to be brilliant doctors, all that stuff. 
Um, there are 6,000 scientists at the NIH, and very few of them are doing original creative work. Very few of them ever win any awards. And they get angry and bitter as, you know, 30 years pass, and they're no longer, you know, suddenly they're surrounded by 6,000 other people who are the smartest kid in junior high school, and they're not winning the Nobel Prize. They're not finding the cure for cancer. And then some goon comes along with coffee enemas and nutrition and diet and carrot juice and pancreatic enzymes, reversing pancreatic cancer, which they see because we presented cases. Do you think they, that endears them to me and say, oh, good, I'm going to give up my position to make Gonzalez king of the NIH? They hate me. They hope they get hit by a bus outside of Madison Avenue. They're great. They're, as my friends have said, the reason they were so determined to undermine you is because they're afraid of you, because they're afraid of what you do really works. And if what I do works, they don't know how to do it. They don't understand it. They've invested their whole life in the drug company model of medicine. And suddenly I come along with coffee enemas and individualized diet and pancreatic enzymes. They don't know what this is. It's like talking Chinese. They don't understand the science of it, but you would think the dedication first, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, and continuous learning. Now, that's, that's how we began this study, uh, that, this uh, conversation. Uh, the idea that academic scientists are these pristine intellectuals who are concerned about science, truth, the purity of truth, and patient care and getting patients. Well, that's not what they care about at all. It's about their ego, their position, their authority, their power base, their income. That's what they care about. I know. I deal with them. Oh, there may be a few idealistic scientists stuck somewhere and by accident somehow they end up at the NIH. But the general consensus down there is that, you know, protect your own turf. And the politics down there are vicious. It is, I talk about other instances in the book of other scientists uh, where fraud was committed at the NIH. And Can you talk about, sorry to interrupt you, can you talk just briefly in the last few minutes here about the government science run amok, the HIV neverprene? Neverprene, yeah. That was an interesting situation, which is just fraud at an international level. Um, about 19, in the 1990s, the NIH funded major clinical studies in Africa where they were going to use a protease inhibitor, nivirapine, in pregnant women who had HIV, were HIV positive with the goal of preventing transmission from the mother to the baby. And this was a showcase NIH study. Millions of dollars were spent. International consortium of scientists came together, and it was run out of the NIH in Bethesda. And in 1999, the first data was released showing this was miraculous. There was virtually, you know, absolute cessation of transmission from the HIV-positive mothers to the babies using nivirapine. The only problem was the data was fraudulent. Um, some of it was made up. They, they left out the fact that 14 women died, that there were thousands of serious, over a thousand serious side effects, that the study was so poor. It was a combination of fraud and incompetence. Just in, in our study, there was a lot of incompetence. But they couldn't even tell which mothers were getting the, the drug. Um, other, other patients were actually entered into another clinical study, which completely confused the results. And all this was left out of the official report. The glowing data was published in Lancet without any mention of the fact that the study had been grossly, completely, totally, both mismanaged and fraudulently mismanaged. Eventually, there were government investigations, and uh, Jonathan Fishbein was a government scientist who actually had some level of integrity, which it had complete integrity, which in a government scientist is apparently a rare thing. And he blew the whistle on this. He said, this is a, a mismanaged and competently run fraudulent study. The data is fraudulent. What's interesting is the NIH was so successful at hi hiding the mismanagement of fraud. The president announced this study at a Rose Garden press conference, President Bush, back, I think it was 2002, uh, that this was a great innovation that would help end AIDS in Africa. He, they just duped the president. That's how high the, the how to what high level the line went. So they even tried to keep it from the president. But Jonathan Fishbein had nothing to do with that. He said this is fraud. And he had, and then the, the way the NIH handled it when he filed complaints about this fake data, they fired him. 
they fired him. And then finally Congress got involved and vindicated Fishbein, made the NIH rehire him, and then the media got involved. They tried to keep it off in the media. The media just went wild on this. The study had been completely grossly mismanaged. Women died that were not reported in the published articles. Over a thousand terrible side effects not reported in the published article that no one knew which patient was getting the drug and that kind of thing. It finally came out in the media. Fishbein was, they tried to destroy his career because he had the integrity to say the emperor has no clothes. This is a fake study. But the high-level NIH scientists involved in the study were so convinced that niverapine had to work, even if they had to change the data. They were going to make sure that the world learned that that niverapine worked. It reminds me of the whole climate scene. What happens to climate scientists who don't toe the line about global warming and the faked data and running simulations, and if you don't go with the flow, you're simply fired. That's right. That's what they go after you and try and destroy your career. I think this is academia in general, right? Academia in general. Uh, I hope no one out there has the, this delusion or illusion that academicians, particularly academic scientists, care at all for scientific truth. It's about their own opinion, their power, their ego, their idea. Uh, there's no one at the NCI that wants to give me credit. Why should they give me credit for reversing pancreatic cancer when they can't do that? So they'd rather, they'd rather just it's like predatory animals. They'd rather get rid of me than actually say Gonzalez really was right. That is, imagine, that, imagine the level of integrity and honesty that would require. Yeah, Gonzalez really does reverse pancreatic cancer. They'd rather, they'd rather I get hit by a truck. That's their greatest wish, that I just disappear. Because I'm also particularly thorn in their side because I won't go away. I won't let it dry. I won't die. I won't let it... We'll let them forget it. Do they understand how far back this protocol goes, like with Dr. Beard? and They don't care enough to find out. Certainly, you know, we would meet every three months until we stopped going to the meetings because the minutes weren't being accurately transcribed. Uh, but we did go to many, many meetings, and we would talk about the history. But they would just glaze over. They didn't care. Um, they were hoping that that the study would show conclusively that my therapy didn't work, and I'd go away and leave them alone, and they could continue to be the, smart, be the smartest kid on the block. Wow. So that, that's the way. Well, they could care less about Beard or the science or the fact that Beard discovered stem cells or the fact that Beard was reversing cancer 100 years ago with pancreatic cancer. They just could care less. In fact, it annoys them. There was one uh, instance, and it's not in the book, actually, because I'd left it out. This is one of the things I didn't put in. There was one oncologist at Columbia that I thought was troubled that it wasn't being run properly, though he later turned out to be not as uh, honorable as I thought. And he at one point said, look, we, we hear that you're getting patients well in your private practice, even though this clinical studies not going the way we want. Why don't you at the next three-month meeting present 10 of your own cases with pancreatic cancer from your own practice who did well in your care? So we said, great, we'll do it. Isaacs and I, we really worked our tail feathers off. We got 10 patients. We wrote it up in a monograph form. We got it all printed up and copied with bound. It looked beautiful with the records, with patient uh, names to redact it just for confidentiality reasons. And they had the actual records there to prove it. And we had 10 patients, including people with stage 4 pancreatic cancer in the liver that regressed on our therapy, people alive 10, 14 years later, had all the cases. We, there were like 12 people going to be at the meeting. We brought 12, 12 of these documents, distributed at the beginning of the meeting. And they're just looking through this. And they, their facial expressions were so, so revealing they were getting angry. They were angry because they actually met the challenge and did it, and did it in a professional way. And there were the records. It wasn't just my saying. It presented it from my memory. There were the records, and there was the patient case history written up. The oncologist who asked me to do this said, wow, these are extraordinary cases. And everyone sort of glared at him, and he never said another word. Not one 
of the other people at that meeting said one word about any of those patients, not good job or thanks for doing this, not even a thank you. They didn't want to say anything at an official meeting that might be transcribed or that I might use against them claiming that, you know, my therapy worked. They didn't say one word. It was just extraordinary. They could have cared less. The fact that I was able to produce 10 case histories of advanced pancreatic cancer who were alive 5 and 10 and more years later only annoyed them. They didn't think I'd be able to do it. The fact that, again, I met the challenge, did it right, put it together in a beautiful printed format, just annoyed the hell out of them. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Did you know that approximately 65,000 of the 70,000 chemicals that have been dumped into the environment are considered to be highly toxic? That we are ingesting those toxins through the air, the water, and the food supply? And that no matter how much you eat organic food and drink the best, purest water, we all have to detoxify from these chemicals that we're being bombarded with. We're also being bombarded with something invisible, the radiation fallout from Fukushima, one of the worst man-made environmental disasters humanity has seen since Chernobyl. In combination with the BP oil spill, the fact is that we have to detoxify our bodies of toxins and of the radiation. But how do you do that? You do that with rock-powdered zeolite. Zeolite is the most effective mineral you can take to detoxify your body. Zeolite has been used to treat Chernobyl victims the land and agriculture, it's been very effective. It's also given to animals to detoxify as well. If you are interested in establishing a prevention program and detoxifying your body, go to etszeolite.com or call Hank Heister at 818-707-0468. And if you tell him it's rainmaking time, you will get free shipping for the product that you order. Call Hank Heister at 818-707-0468 and order your zeolite today. And back to the show. I have a feeling that when you were going into these meetings with them, that they were all coached legally before they went in. I don't know why. Oh, I, I'm absolutely sure they were. That's why they wouldn't say a word. If they, this was an official meeting, so it was all public information technically, and they were being, supposedly being transcribed, although it was not being honestly transcribed. Um, if they had said anything positive, they were afraid it would be transcribed, and I would have a legal record of them supporting my work. So they said, I mean, they didn't even say, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. They just sat there silently saying nothing. The one oncologist from Columbia said, oh, wow, these incredible cases. He got glared at, never said another word in the meeting. And after a period of silence, uh, I finally said, well, let's go on to the next subject of the meeting. And that was the end of it. Uh, one note, one, yeah, they were being close legally because they, they were, I, I think to this day, they're afraid I'm going to sue them, um, when they, especially after that, the book. So, yeah, they, they were being close legally because I would confront them, as you saw in the book. I would write them letters and say, why... Uh, I asked the, one of the NCI representatives, I said, can you name one study in the history of the NCI where the investigator had to pay for the, for the study? And she just sent me this bizarre letter that made no sense. Obviously, it looked like it had been, she'd been legally coached. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what I picked up. I mean, even in what you were saying about the meetings. Oh, yeah. They were, they were being legally coached. They, they were afraid that I was uh, – why would they be afraid? If they'd run the study properly, there's nothing to be afraid of. Well, they knew they hadn't run it properly. They knew what was going on there. 
as limited in intelligence as ultimately I think many of them are down at the NIH, they were smart enough to know they'd done something wrong. Um, they really were. I have a quick question. I did a piece on soy last week. And in the book, you had said that soy has an inhibitor, the Bowman Burke. Bowman Burke inhibitor, yes. Talk about that for a minute, how it has a protein that neutralizes trypsin and why that's important to know about. Well, in our therapy, though, in this conversation, we haven't gone into the theory about what we do. We use large doses of pancreatic enzymes to kill cancer based on the work of John Beard from 1902 was his first paper. And he believed trypsin, in addition to its digestive function, you know, it's a main digestive enzyme, has an anti-cancer function and is the main anti-cancer nutrient and substance in the body. And he treated cancer successfully 100 years ago with trypsin. Well, soy has the most powerful trypsin inhibitor of any food on earth. It's called a Bowman-Burke inhibitor. And it completely neutralizes trypsin. That's why we're avidly anti-soy because, well, soy does two things. It blocks pancreatic enzymes, which is a disaster for digestion, but also a disaster for cancer protection. And it also knocks out the thyroid. A lot of my my alternative doctor friends that believe in soy, eating lots of soy, a lot of them are getting low thyroid function. And they're still on TV talking about the value of soy. It blocks thyroid, but it, in our world, it's, it, it gives me nightmares because it blocks pancreatic enzymes, and we use pancreatic enzymes to treat cancer. So we don't think anyone should be eating soy. I agree with you. There's so many things frightening about soy that we didn't know 25 years ago, or some people knew, but most of us mainstream people didn't know and it was being touted as this great health food. It's a disaster. It's a well, first disaster. Of all, you know, at this point, probably 95% is genetically modified anyway. Right. So it's, that's, that's another issue entirely. But soy itself, even in its pure organic form, it has uh, thyroid inhibitors and uh, pepsin, uh, trypsin inhibitors. It blocks pancreatic enzymes. Well, I want to tell you that I so appreciate what you and Dr. Isaacs are doing that you've published, also your other books that you've published. So first, I want to thank you for being with us. I do want to invite you back. I'd like to take a whole session with you as well and go into a whole piece on nutrition with you if you'd be open. Yeah, sure. And I'd like to discuss parts of some of your other books that may feel a little bit remote and obtuse to some people and kind of bring it home. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Nick Gonzalez, the author of many books, but the most recent one that you've got to pick up is called What Went Wrong? The Truth Behind the Clinical Trial of the Enzyme Treatment of Cancer. You can pick this up by going to Dr. Dr. Gonzalez, G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z.com, and you can read about Dr. Gonzalez's marvelous work in New York. Thank you so much for being with us. It's always so enlightening to talk with you. Thank you for everything you're standing for, for truth, for wellness, for health, for curing disease, and for standing up, both you and Dr. Isaacs. God bless you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being here and having the opportunity to talk about all these things. It's rainmaking time.